My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you are still alive and it is my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I'm your host, Cade Courtley, and today we have another amazing guest. All right, folks, we have an American entertainer in radio, TV, film. He has made numerous appearances on political talk shows as a commentator. He is a best-selling author and is widely referred to as the godfather of the podcast. And he also knows what he's doing behind the wheel of an automobile. Folks, please welcome the great Adam Carolla. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Is it fair to say that you grew up in the school of hard knocks? Yeah, I mean, I didn't live in a project in the inner city and I didn't my dad wasn't a coal miner or a sharecropper or anything, but I I just grew up in sort of basic poverty with dusting of depression and just sort of you want stuff but you don't get stuff. You want a mini bike, you can't have a mini bike. You want to eat a steak, you can't have a steak. Like I was probably 33 before I had my first shrimp. I was probably 41 before I had a lobster tail. Like I was like, I didn't even know you could eat that. I didn't know you could order that stuff. Like I just grew up in a kind of weird, depressed poverty. At what age did you realize, hey, if I'm going to make it in in this world, it's going to be on me. It probably came earlier than most of your peers, I'd imagine. Well, so I had that at about age nine, maybe eight. But it wasn't really if I'm going to make it in this world, it's on me. I had a if I'm going to survive, it's on me. I didn't really have make it. I hadn't worked my way up to make it for a a long time. I started with looking around when I was probably eight or nine, kind of going, these people are F ups and they're not going to take care of you. And I don't think anyone's going to take care of you. And the first phase of this is you're going to have to survive. You're going to have to figure out where to eat. You're going to have to sort of figure out how to navigate, negotiate whatever society you happen to be living in at the time. And then at some point, if you come out the other end, then it's going to be time to start thinking about what thriving may look like. Although it probably worked for me, it was sort of survive. Then it went to just kind of exist, like have an apartment, have a pickup truck, have a job, you know, eat out once every four months at a sizzler or something. And then it started to make its way toward, okay, now that you've completed this part where, you know, you're a carpenter, you have a truck, you have a roof over your head, albeit one bedroom apartment with two roommates. But now we can start thinking about the next phase, which might look like having insurance and maybe owning a condominium that you lived in and maybe not having roommates and maybe driving a Toyota Supra instead of a Datsun mini pickup truck. So so from an early age, you spent a lot of time in the basement of Maslow's hierarchy, basically just trying to get to the next day type of thing. Yeah, I was never 
a guy who like sort of looked up and went for the brass ring or something like that. I was just kind of like, was all kind of structured on the hourly rate. You know, it was like I worked at McDonald's. I made, you know, $3 and 10 cents an hour. Then it was like, I worked cleaning carpets or I worked at a liquor store doing deliveries and I was making $6 an hour, you know, and then I worked cleaning carpets and I made $7 an hour. And then I got a construction labor job and I was making $8 an hour. And then my foreman said, if you buy a pickup truck, I'll give you a another dollar an hour. I bought a pickup truck and he gave me $9 an hour. And I was just all about just sort of working my way up the per hour rate. Like I knew if I was a decent carpenter, the carpenters that were actual journeyman carpenters were making 15 bucks an hour back then. So I was like, I got to become a journeyman carpenter so I can make $15 an hour. And that's all it was. And then at a certain point, I realized that it really doesn't matter how much you're making an hour. You need some sort of career. So I can't just keep adding up your work week where you work 51 hours this week, 51 times 13. You know, that's how much money you get. Like <laughs> I, I realized at some point that that wasn't a, a good life strategy. Do you think sports played a really important part in you growing up, as you were saying, surviving or even keeping you out of trouble, keeping you away from making the wrong turn? Yeah, sports was a big, big deal for me, a very big deal for me. It was kind of the only thing I was good at. And I also had a kind of a journey with sports that would prove to be useful in, in the rest of my journey of, of life. I had this kind of weird relationship with sports where at the beginning, I was sort of superior at it. I was better than everyone else my age. And I don't know what it was. My family's not athletic at all, but I had bizarre balance. And because my balance was so good, I had this crazy kind of athleticism. So I could wrestle anyone to the ground and just whoop them in wrestling. I'd wrestle everybody and I'd just throw them around like a rag doll. And then I could play football and throw everyone around. Like it, it was so easy for me when I was nine, 10, eight, nine, 10, I rode a unicycle. I could do anything when I was like 10 years old. Cause I had this weird, crazy balance. And it's all I, all I wanted to do. Cause I was a bad student and that was it. It was either you went, did something scholastically or you did something in sports. And so it was all about sports for me. There was no video games or go-karts or big flat panel TVs or air conditioning. There was no distraction. So it was all sports all the time. And then at a certain point, as I got into high school, as I got into like the ninth and the 10th grade, it became apparent that whatever was going on with me in sports, I was kind of losing my touch with it. Like I wasn't what was going on is the genes were kicking in with a lot of guys around me. Their genetics were kicking in because puberty was kicking in and I didn't have good genetics. So mine wasn't kicking in and they were getting all strong and fast and athletic around me. And I didn't have any of that anymore. And now the guys I used to throw around my best friends who I would, my best friends, it was so boring for us to wrestle when I was 12 because I just throw them around so easily that 
the game was I would just lay on my back and let them pin me. And we just see how long it took for me to pin them from that position. Cause otherwise it wasn't any fun. Now all of a sudden these guys were five times stronger than me and throwing me around. It was this horrible, now a realization. So now I was a still a bad student, but the only thing I was good at, I wasn't good at anymore. And I came to kind of a crossroads and the crossroads was, well, you can kind of quit or you can triple down your efforts. Like you're going to have to just live your life like a Rocky training montage, raw eggs in the morning and right to the weight room. And, and so I did, I was like, I'm going that route. And I just got into the weight room and I started chugging raw eggs and I just kind of willed myself, I willed myself back into a starting position and, and on to become a all league player and, and that kind of stuff. I was on the opposite end of that because I was the late bloomer. So I was the skinniest, the smallest, the slowest growing up compared to my peers. But thank God for wrestling, because as you well know, you're going against somebody your weight. Right. And so there's no pads, there's no balls, there's no sticks. It's just you and him on a mat and may the best man win. But talking about your early challenges that had to set you up for success later, because there's so many people, you know, I look at my girlfriend's kids and they're like, they're not challenged at all. It's a disservice because the world is a tough place. And if you don't start that foundation earlier, they're just going to be lost when they actually leave home and try and live an adult life. Yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, the world is a tough place. I'm thinking about that. It's a tough place if you'd like to have success. If you want to vape and watch porn on your laptop all day, it can be a not so difficult place to navigate. But it is tough if you want something. You know, I mean, like if you really want something. And I think this is interesting because for the first time, we may have a generation of people that don't really want something. I saw it here with the young guys in my studio working for my podcast and various other things. And I would see some of these guys just mid twenties, early twenties, kind of meandering around. I'd look at them and I'd go, what do you want? You know, like I started poking around, like going, do you have what you want? Like, what do you want? And they're like, ah, I got a big TV. I got plenty <laughs> of weed and I don't drive a stick. I just got an Uber from point A to point B. I got all the porn I need for free on my phone. And I got my bong and I got Uber Eats and I'm good. And I was oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, you're so good. Bright. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> you're comfortable. Who's to say? Like, I don't know if when I was 24, if you gave me a 65 inch TV with 700 channels on it and a magical phone that had all the porn in the world on it and I could go get an in and out burger for four bucks. I don't know. And pot was basically free. Like, I don't know what I've just hung out and ripped a bong load and watched TV and had an in and out burger sitting in air conditioning with a car that has air conditioning and works fine. You can go buy a seven year old mini Cooper and it works fine. When I was young, I was like, I want a cool car and that's expensive. And I want, a stereo and that's expensive. You know, I wanted a bunch of stuff that was expensive. So I was compelled to go out and kind of get some. 
but I don't feel that sense of urgency today. Yeah. And if you think about it and you look at it and you see all these like young people out in the streets marching and 23 year old blonde chicks like screaming at cops and stuff like that, it's like, what do you want? What do you have to fight for? What do you have to protect? And I realize these people don't have anything. They don't want anything. Oh, they, you know they I mean? want followers. That's about all I, all I can identify. Right. But right. <laughs> it's it's sad. It, well, it's a sad state. But I understand that you didn't get your high school diploma until several years later because you had to pay a library fine. I didn't ever get it until, God, maybe uh, I didn't get it until about 20 years later or more more than 20 years later, just because I owed the book room money for a book. <laughs> it was like $19, you know, at the time, which was like, that was a lot of money for me. I didn't have $19 when I was graduating high school and my family, unclear if they had it, but they weren't going to give it to me if they did. So I was kind of logical about the whole thing, which is I knew that I wasn't going to need my high school diploma for my future endeavors. So, so I was cleaning carpets and then I was working as a laborer on construction sites. And uh, later on, I worked as a boxing coach. And then, then I got into radio. I kind of knew instinctively that this diploma wasn't something I was going to need to brandish. I didn't think anyone was ever going to ask me for it, where I was going and where I was going. I've never even filled out a job application. Like I've never had a regular job per se. Well, I tell you what, you were talking about fighting and you've spoken about this before, but you explained how in your late teens and early twenties, you did a lot of it. And I think there's something to be said for being able to defend yourself and take care of business. I think everybody should know how to do that. But was that something that by nature of maybe, would you consider yourself a rebel? I probably had more of that in me when I was younger you don't, want, a, you don't want to be over 50 and get in street fights. That generally <laughs> doesn't play well. Well, my policy is, is if the other guy's over 70, then I'm in. <laughs> but not with some, uh, not some plucky 19-year-old. That's for damn well, sure. What if the 70-year-old has ears that look like chewed up bubblegum? Are you going to think twice? Oh, yeah. No, I would definitely I just, uh, ask him to peel his hunting cap back and let me have a gander before we scrap. I was not what you call a troublemaker. I just sort of had a policy that if I was around troublemakers and I kind of was because there's a bunch of these kind of guys where I grew up kind of valley dudes. My kind of policy was if somebody wanted to fight, then we had to fight. And I didn't start fights and I didn't go out looking for trouble. But if somebody said something or said like, we, I'm going to kick your ass or, or whatever that thing is, then we would have to fight. That was kind of my policy. So if it came up, then I would engage in it. Actually, the only time I kind of initiated something was my best friend was at some chick's apartment and some guys I like kind of showed up and he was just sitting in a chair and one of the guys like grabbed him like kind of in a bear hug, like holding him to the chair. And the other guy just took a beer bottle and he just busted it right over my best buddy's head. What? I don't even know what these guys were doing or what the deal was or whatever. I, who knows? But the guy 
who busted the beer bottle over my friend's head one night I was at a bar and I like spotted the guy and I was like, I'm going to go up to that guy and I'm going to tell him we need to step outside. I like out of a movie. And I like walked up to the guy. I was like, Hey man, you did something to a friend of mine. And now we got to even the score. And he's like, okay. And he got up and he's about six, five, you know, <laughs> two forty. And I was like, Oh, Wait, Damn. wait, you're not that guy. Never mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wrong guy. But that was the only guy. And then I was in this weird position of like trying to save face, but didn't want to go fight this giant, aggressive, bottle busting guy out in the parking lot of this bar. And I think he was a little put off. He probably didn't get a lot of guys getting in his face because the way yeah. it was built. So maybe he took that as something. Maybe he didn't like that. I mean, he didn't like he thought maybe I knew something. I had some skills or something and we sort of figured it out. And then he sat back down again because I did not want to go out. But that, that was about the only time I actually initiated anything. Well, I mean, sometimes the big boys, because they've always been big boys, kind of don't really know what the hell they're doing when it comes to a fight because they've always been a big boy and a lot of people won't mess with that. So you never know. Yeah. But usually it ends pretty ugly when you've got a couple of hostas going at it in the street. I was, yeah. I was at a bar in San Diego with three of my SEAL buddies and we got into it with one guy and we didn't realize his entire fraternity was also in the bar. So yeah. that turned into back-to-back knuckle junction and it was pretty messy, but I guess we should have known the audience a little bit better. <laughs> I had this fight with this guy out in the street where he had all his buddies with him and I was just like, all right, you guys agree to stay out of this and they're like yes we do and i was like okay so it's just me and this guy and they're like yes and i said okay and <laughs> until you're on the ground getting kicked in the everybody head. jumped on me and beat yep. the shit out of me and a beer bottle broke on me and a baseball bat <laughs> oh, it was bud. a disaster man but i took everyone's word for it that they were going to stay out of it and they did not <laughs> A little bit of Advil after that experience, I imagine. So speaking of fighting, I believe the rumor is that you and Jimmy Kimmel met through a mutual friend and then you started training him to box. And then the rest is history. You guys ended up working together quite a bit. Imagine that. Yeah. No, we didn't meet through a mutual friend. I never knew Jimmy or, or any mutual friends. He was just working for a radio station and the radio station was putting on a morning zoo type stunt like a boxing match oh. and they needed trainers. And I was working as a boxing trainer part-time and also as a carpenter at the time. And I wanted to teach Jimmy or the guy he was boxing to box just so I could see the inside of the studio or get to the radio station. I'd always been kind of intrigued with radio. So I wanted to check it out, but that's about it. So I met Jimmy for the first time as his boxing trainer. Well, I mean, then you guys go on to work together quite a bit. It's really cool because, oh, gee, imagine a time when two people with very different ideas and ideologies are able to get together and put out an amazing product or several products and work together. Imagine that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's also a weird time we're in now because like nobody, Jimmy and I, there wasn't ideologies. It was like you get up, you go to work, you pay your bills. You pay your taxes, you raise your kids and you go back to do, you know, you wash, rinse and repeat. You just do it again. There wasn't a whole bunch of stuff that we had to sort out. You know, there wasn't 
you know, transgender rights and a bunch of stuff you had to argue about. There was just yeah. life. You got up, you were nice to your neighbors, you took care of your family, you paid your taxes, and that was it. Oh, it's time to go back in the time machine to that. I understand that you were working on the Howard Stern show and then eventually were offered the position that Jackie Martland was. And you basically said, well, thanks, but no thanks. Well, yeah, sort of. Jackie left the show. And so mm-hmm. sort of the Jackie seat was open. And what happened was, is me and Jimmy went to do the Howard Stern show. Finally, after years of being on TV, Jimmy was always a fanatical Howard Stern fan. And I was a Howard Stern fan as well. I just wasn't fanatical like Jimmy. Jimmy was a fanatical Howard Stern fan. So we went to go do his show. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the man show had been on for a season or something like that. And, you know, Howard, Howard goes to bed at 8 p.m. I mean it if, on, on a late you night. To, you want to, <laughs> you want to go to dinner with Howard Stern. You go to dinner at five. That's dinner time. Like you're at the Denny's blue hair special. I know it. I, I've done it. And so Howard didn't really know who I was and didn't really know who Jimmy was because we were on shows that were on, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And we went in to do a show and he didn't know who I was really. He didn't really know my work but he was blown away by my ability to crack wise and add to his show and blah, blah, blah. So later on he called me and he was just like, I don't know who you are, but I'm blown away. And I want you to come out here and take this seat. And because he didn't really know who I was, he didn't know that I had radio shows and TV shows and a family and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I can't just pick up and move to New York. So he understood that. And then I used to just kind of sit in via the studio satellite hookup all the time with him, which was pretty brutal for me because with the time I'd start and sit in the whole show from a Westwood one studio in Culver city. And that meant 3 a.m to 8 a.m. basically for me of my time it was just working from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. and I had a job Loveline that ended at midnight so it was a really difficult thing to <laughs> work until midnight and then work again from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. yeah but those are I like would, those I would are do like it all vamp- the time vampire hours right there yeah but that was the story <laughs> Well, back towards the survival aspect, somebody would probably say, oh, you're nuts not to take this opportunity. But throughout your career and your life, have you gone with your instinct and your gut? Because a lot of people who have gotten through nasty, life-threatening situations have said, yeah, I just, I went with my instinct. I got through it. Would you say that would represent sort of your life, your career, going with your gut, not necessarily chasing what could be the best thing at the time? Yeah, I pretty much just do what I want to do. I don't have a strong, big plan for things. You know, people kind of say to me all the time, like, why did you do this show? You know, they'll go, what are you doing on Bill O'Reilly's show? And I'll go, he asked me to come on his show. (laughs) That's it. That's all there is to it. What are you doing with this? Or what are you doing with that? I just go, "Uh, they asked me to do it or some 
club called and said, do you want to play shows this weekend? And I went, yeah, okay. I don't really think about things that much. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's the greatest plan. It's worked generally for me, but who knows how much better it could have worked if I had a plan. We'll never know. I don't take a lot of time to make decisions. If there's a warehouse that's in the neighborhood and it comes up for sale and I think I can use it for production or podcasts or working on automobiles or something like that. I'll just buy it. I don't really have a lot of like soul searching. I don't talk to that many people about that kind of stuff. I have a few people I like to run ideas, bounce ideas off of, but for the most part, I just get up and go. I don't think about it that much. Adam, what would you say are two of your strongest core values? Hmm. I'm very, don't do anything to anyone or to in any way, shape or form that you wouldn't want done to yourself. So very kind of golden ruley. Sure. You know, I would never litter. I would never lie to anybody. I would never screw anyone over the idea of screwing somebody over. And by the way, just so you don't think I'm that virtuous or anything, I'm sure there are plenty of people that dislike me and think I'm this way or that way, which may be true, but I would never knowingly screw anyone out of anything. I've done a million deals, business deals, real estate deals. Like I just, I would never do anything nefarious to anybody. I don't lie. And qualities are, I don't really factor myself into the equation. So if it's the right thing to do, we'll do it. If it's the wrong thing, we'll do it, not do it. I don't really factor myself in at all. Well, I mean, would you rather be liked or respected? And I think I know the answer. Yeah, I'm going to go with respected mm -hmm. for sure. Or you can shoot for both. I tend to think most of the people I respect, I like. I don't think it's a toggle switch if you have to be on or off with like and, and respect or it's binary. I just sort of think most of the people I respect, I like. And by the way, for me, the most important quality in any living creature is character. Sure. If you have character, I'm all about you. And if you don't, I, there's issues. So whatever your pay scale is, whatever your education is, wherever you are on whatever the social totem pole is, if you got character, man, that is just huge for me. And if you don't have character, that's a huge issue as well. And my family doesn't have character. So I'm very like acutely tuned into that. And yeah. I, I have these little episodes and they're like seared into my brain. These like low character moves that my family members have pulled. And I'm frankly, like I'm disgusted by it. Like there's weird little stories. They're like parables. Like they don't even amount to anything, but it's all you need to know. And I'll tell you an example. And the reason I, I can remember it like I was in a play where I memorized the script and everything is because it was so poignant to me about God must have been 15 years ago, maybe more. I went to my grandmother's house 
for Mother's Day. And my mom was there and my grandma was there. My grandfather had passed away, but my stepdad was there and my sister was there with her husband. And it was me and maybe my girlfriend or fiance or something at the time. And I brought a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne as a gift for my mom for Mother's Day. And I probably got my sister a bottle and my mom a bottle. My mom is very cheap and would never buy champagne that was over $8, but would love some Dom Perignon if she didn't have to buy it. You know, So I <laughs> gave it to her and I gave it to my sister. And at some point, my mom maybe got a little confused and said, hey, she sort of said it to the group, which only consisted of family members, her mom, her husband, her daughter, her son. She said, uh, hey, maybe we can convince Adam to like share some of his wonderful champagne with us. And she kind of turned to me and she said, could we open a bottle of your Dom Perignon champagne? Would that be OK? And I said, oh, it's not my bottle. It's your bottle. That's a gift to you. She got a little confused and thought I brought it for the party or something. I said, no, that's your bottle. And she went, oh, oh, OK. And I saw her later hiding it under a sweater. <laughs> and I thought, man, baby, you got no character, zero <laughs> character. You're hiding free champagne. So it's like you announced that you wanted to drink this. You're perfectly willing to drink it as long as your son was providing it. But once you realized it was yours, even though you didn't work for it or pay for it, once you realized it was yours, you were going to hide it from your family members. And I thought, what else do you need to know? That's all you need to know. That is a zero character move. Uh, it's just, you know, you pick your friends, you don't pick your family. And when right. family disappoints, it kind of is a little bit more of a gut punch than it should be. But that is life. Back on character. You've been in Hollywood entertainment business for decades. Not a place commonly known for a lot of character and honesty. How have you done that without literally digging holes in the desert and making people go away? There's a group in Hollywood, um, probably much like any business. There's a group of really just outstanding people in the character department. Jimmy's got a lot of character. Jay Leno's got a lot of character. Many people I've, I've dealt with have a ton of character, not Kevin Smith, but I've <laughs> dealt with many others that do. And so you have douches like Kevin Smith who have zero character and you don't deal with those guys anymore. And then you have guys like Jimmy who have super high character and others. And, and there's horrible producers and you just don't, I've worked with a lot of producers. I've just never worked with them ever again. Yeah. They have character issues and same with agents and managers and everything under the sun. So it's, it's no different than any other business. Your job is just to kind of sort them out. I'm sure this happens in commercial real estate. There's the people you don't want to do deals with because they have character issues. And then there's high character people and you have these long-term relationships with them. Well, generally you get one shot of reputation and if you break it, it is incredibly difficult to try and repair it. So you've had a series, you know, all good things come to an end, but you've had a series of incredible shows, Love Line, The Man Show, Crank Yankers, things like that, Adam Carolla Project. How have you dealt with Hey, 
this is done now. Everybody deals with failure in their life. Are you like, okay, on to the next one. That was fun. Had a great time or damn it. I wish we would have made some different decisions somewhere in between or project by project or that's just life. Yeah. That's the nature of the business and I don't dwell on it and I just move right ahead to the next, the next project. And I don't ask questions when people say they're not picking you up for season two or season eight or season whatever. I don't ask why I don't need to know why told me that, or they've told announced that they're not picking this thing up or doing this thing or moving ahead with this project or that project. And I don't ask why I don't get into any details. I just do the next thing. Sometimes I'm even a little relieved that I'm not going back and doing the same thing again. And again, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd want to be on, you know, season 19 of the man show. And sometimes there's things you do because you leave in the case of the man show that we left. And then there are things where the Adam Carolla project, people really love that series. And uh, I have no idea why we didn't do season two. I enjoyed it. I like home improvement, but I didn't ask. I always assume it wasn't doing gangbusters in the ratings. If it's doing gangbusters in the ratings, somebody will figure out a way to, to keep it going. But no, I'm pretty philosophical about it. I just pick up and go to the next thing. Or I just pick up and go home and see what happens. (laughs) Have you ever been in a life-threatening situation where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this? Not a lot. I've experienced, you know, when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 out in the swimming out in the bay and a real bad riptide, like pulling you out kind of to sea and being pummeled by a wave and then being kind of pulled away from the shore by the riptide, which does kill a couple of people a year, I guess. And it'll drown you. And it's a kind of a weird panicky feeling is because the sea is like pulling you out to the sea and you're trying to get to the shore. I've had that a couple of times I've had, I got lost camping and hiking once where I was just in the middle of nowhere and didn't have anything and had no idea what direction civilization was. I've had that. It's funny as I never really think about it or thought about it. I've had a couple construction related things that fell and could have crushed you if it hit you and scaffolding that broke and a couple of things that went wrong. I, I had a guy with a shotgun once in a unit I was working in when I was doing earthquake rehab and there was a possibility I could have got shot with this guy's shotgun, but now I don't, I mean, I've done some car races and had some spin outs at some high speeds and that kind of stuff. But in general, I mean, you know, because I worked as a carpenter and I worked in construction, there was always kind of a lot of stuff around me that could have gone South pretty fast. And occasionally it did. And it, some of it was just kind of, kind of luck of the draw that you weren't underneath that thing when it gave way or whatever happened. There's a little bit of that, but no, I never had a life threatening disease and I never had a guy point a gun at my head, but some stuff that could have got me killed just didn't. (laughs) Well, it just wasn't your day, right? Can't wait to get into the car thing. But before we do back to the intro, the godfather of podcasts, you, according to the Guinness book of world records, are still the most downloaded podcast. 
And that's back when it was an earlier version. But talk to me about Take a Knee. That is a show that is a inspirational kind of motivational podcast. And you're going to be a guest on probably the next one, depending on how the, the math works out here. But at some point, I really started getting interested in people and their stories and and sharing advice. And I guess at a certain point, you think a little less about telling jokes and a little more about telling stories and Mm -hmm. trying to motivate people. And I felt as if I had traveled around, seen enough and had some ideas on how things worked. And if I could share those ideas with people, I could see it working for them as well. And because I probably come from a place that's maybe a little different than most in that I didn't come from that kind of abject poverty where you you hustled in the streets and you worked your way up and now you're a big rap mogul or something like that. Like it wasn't that, but it also wasn't, I worked hard. I went to college on a scholarship and I learned, blah, blah. It wasn't that either. It was this kind of weird blue collar in between Mm -hmm. world of like, I didn't go to bed at night and hear gunshots outside my window. On the other hand, I never had a counselor say, you know, you're poor, but you're a good student. And if you get this scholarship, you can work hard. And I didn't have that either. It was a kind of a just kind of meandering through life with nobody to talk to, no advice, no jobs, no family business, no anything. And I just sort of was left to figure it out. And I thought, that's probably most people are probably in that position versus inner city or the gifted, you know, the uh, goodwill hunting kind of position. You know, most of people are just my position, kind of average and dumb parents and nobody cares. And I thought some sort of motivation from that perspective would be good. What kind of advice, if you had a one minute conversation with a 16 year old Adam Carolla, what would that conversation be like? Well, if I could talk to me uniquely, I mean, versus just a generic 16 year old, if I could talk to me, I'd say, hey, you got a sense of humor and it's not neither here nor there. It means something. It's something you can make money off of. And I know you think of things in terms of being a plumber or an electrician or a fireman or a lawyer or a doctor, but you having a sense of humor is like that. You just can't see it. It's just invisible. You just have to figure out a way to sort of harness it and get paid for it. But it's a tangible trait. It's a talent that will get you paid. So instead of pretending like it doesn't exist and focusing on football or carpet cleaning or whatever it is you're doing, start thinking about this sense of humor thing and how to convert it into something that'll get you paid. Well, I tell you what, you've made it work in a huge way. We have a similar story. I was living in LA and I realized, hey, you know, I'm doing the writing thing and some other stuff, but I need a steady paycheck. So I applied to the Los Angeles City Fire Department. And good luck. Well, yeah. So I figured, okay, let's see, former Navy SEAL, top secret clearance, an officer, and a year and a half later, they said, all right, we're ready to take you to stage two for the interview. I was like, wow, it's been 18 months. Okay. And you kind of had a similar issue where I think you had applied and maybe two years later, you got a letter in the mail or something like that. And they said, all right, we're ready to take you to step two. 
I got my letter five, six years later. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I applied when I was probably 18 or 19 and I didn't get any letter until I was 25. So I was fast tracking as a white guy. Yes. Yes. They moved you right to the middle of the line. I was at the end of the line. I didn't, well, I wasn't a Navy SEAL or anything. I just, I just walked into the North Hollywood fire department. My life was so sort of rudderless that I literally just walked to the closest fire station that I knew of, which was across from North Hollywood Park in, in North Hollywood. And I just walked over there and I just kind of walked in. I was like, hey, uh, you know, I'm strong. I'm ready to go. Like, what are we talking about here? And they're like, <laughs> well, fill out this piece of paper and we'll send and, it and, in. And, and they're I, like, can we see your uh, high school diploma, please? You're like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy told me, he's like, don't hold your breath. Like, we're not really hiring white people. And I was like, okay. And I just filled it out and I just handed it in. And then I got back into, started cleaning carpets and clean up garbage on a construction site. Eventually I forgot about it completely. And I know how old it was because the letter went to my dad's house and I hadn't been living at home for years. So Obviously, the address I filled out at the time was I was living in the garage in my dad's house. So uh -huh. I saw him at some point. He's like, oh, you got a piece of mail from the L.A. Fire Department, you know, and I was like, what is this? It was a test date for the written test. <laughs> well, a strong believer that everything happens or doesn't happen for a reason. I mean, you could be retiring after doing 25 years at the uh, L.A. City Fire Department right now, but you went a different I direction. Absolutely would have been retire would have been yeah i mean i would have been 30 years in and yeah. just gotten full benefits and uh retired by now <laughs> well i tell you what i can't wait to talk cars i understand you recently raced at laguna seca very cool automobiles are my passion always have been what have you driven that scared the hell out of you i've driven a lot of pretty fast vintage race cars i did a professional trans am race about three years ago in a C7R Corvette that was a two-frame Trans Am car. And the car had about, what did they tell me now, at the time they said 850 horsepower, but oh. it's about 930 With, with terrible weight distribution too, right? No, this car was a modern-day Trans Am 1 full-tube frame, purpose-built, $500,000 crazy nice. race car like they dialed that thing in they had semi trucks and guys with computers and checking all the spring rates and working yeah. the yeah. downforce into the aero package and all that kind of stuff but it was still a hairy hairy car that i'd, I'd signed up to race you had to crawl into the window and there's just a cage with all kinds of buttons and doodads and everything in there and before the race, they came out, the marshal came out and said, you have to get all strapped in, six-way harness, Hans device, all your gloves and fire suit and helmet. You have to put everything on. And then I think we give you 20 seconds to get out of the car. Uh. So, and I didn't know the car very well. And, the, you know, has a window net that you have to undo. Window nets 
there's about 10 different varieties of window nets and like how they attach and mm -hmm. how they come off. And sometimes there's like a seatbelt button you push and some are like this thing you spring load, you turn up and pull back and some are attached at the top. Some are attached at the bottom. Some are in the door, but this didn't, car didn't have a door. But I remember when the guy came by and I was just sitting in there, you know, the car's not running or anything. It's just sitting in the paddock and you're all sort of strapped in like an astronaut. And the guy just stand there with a stopwatch and he's like, okay. And I was like, when do we start? And he's like, when you start, I'll start. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And I'm trying to think of like how to take the steering wheel off. The steering wheel comes off. You couldn't get out of the car with the steering wheel on. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is real. Like this guy's timing me in case the car catches on fire. Yeah. Let's make sure I can get out of the car. I know where I am or anything. And that car was intimidating. I drive a Porsche 935 sometimes mm -hmm. in vintage, and it's a rear engine turbo car that just kind of squirrely. It, it works and then it doesn't. It's just like it works real good. And then all of a sudden the rear end just snaps mm -hmm. around, just whips around. And and the last time I drove that car, I spun it out. It's has gone probably about 115, 120 miles an hour, but it was just like, it just whipped. It started to drift a little out to the left. You're like, and gas, then it, gas, and then gas, it just, gas. I did. I hit yeah. the gas. I was on it and it just snapped violently wow. the other direction. And I was just going backwards <laughs> down the track in the middle of a race. And I thought, God, this thing is hairy because it doesn't do anything at all. It's like, being attacked by a snake it just sits there and doesn't do anything and then it's around your neck it's just so docile and kind of friendly and easy and then all of a sudden there's this rear end just goes nuts and the guys that are really good know right where that limit is but if you don't drive them that much like me you don't know when it's about to happen right and that's probably two cars that scared me if you could add any car in the world to your collection, what would that car be? Even if somebody owns it and they say, not selling it, you get the lottery ticket and you get any car in the world to add to your collection, which is an amazing collection, by the way. Well, I'm not going to just go the Ferrari GTO no. for I'm hoping you're going vintage route. route, but. I love BMW M1 Pro cars and you people listening can Google that, but they're 79, probably 80 BMW M1, their first kind of supercar. It's a mid-engine car, but it's done. Uh, the pro cars are full race trim. And I've raced with a couple of these guys. They just look so good in race trim. And they have this naturally aspirated 3.5 liter inline six with these big trumpets, these big mm -hmm. injection big mechanical injection and they probably don't make more than eh, they probably make about 420 horsepower which seems a little light compared to some of the 935s and decon monzas and stuff like that that are in my race but they they probably redline at like 8400 rpm or something they just <laughs> scream and there's just something so cool about a bmw m1 pro car for you guys who are listening, just go on the internet and sort of scout around and look at some of those things. They're just great pieces. So 
they're not $10 million cars and they're not probably about, it's probably about 700 grand for one of those cars, which is in a weird way, kind of moderately priced for the vintage race world, Mm -hmm. but definitely one of the coolest pieces. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, No Safe Spaces. Thank you for that. I thought, thought oh, that thanks. was great. I uh, paid my nineteen ninety five. It was worth every penny. So thank you, wow, and Prager, for that. Also, Adam, you got a new book out, I'm Your Emotional Support Animal. It's available wherever books are sold. And folks, get out there, grab it, watch No Safe Spaces if you haven't seen it. Enlightening, honest, awesome. So, uh, Adam, we play a little game on this show, and it's called the hypothetical survival world. And if you ever read the old choose your own adventure books, basically it's similar to that. I'm going to drop you in the middle of a hypothetical survival situation. You're going to have 10 events where you choose A or you choose B. If you choose the right choice in that event, you get plus 10 points. You choose the wrong one, it's minus 10 points. Any questions before I throw you into survival world? No. Okay, so here we are. This is very applicable, but instead of you racing at Laguna Seca, you have just finished a celebrity race in Mexico City. You got first place. Nothing but smiles. You're talking to folks, doing some post-race interviews with press when you see what appears to be several men, Mexico City, in police uniforms and they start opening fire several people are hit to include private security that you had on hand and you have been nicked in the leg any questions about your scenario before we get into the first event no okay so i think we all know what mexico city is very well known for and congratulations you're right in the middle of a shit storm and it appears that you are being targeted Mm. do you Run or B, do you get down and low crawl? Hmm. I'm trying to think where I'm trying to get to. (laughs) Well, for Uh, anybody who's ever been in or thinks they might be in an active shooter scenario, you only need to think about two things. And the big one is getting the hell out or off of what we call the X in the military. So are you going to run or are you going to get down and low crawl? off the X. Well, if my leg is already nicked, and I'm not sure the definition of nick, like, you know, get some through and through shot, that's not really a nick. But if you're nicked, like if you're grazed, like it's a flesh wound, I'm not immobilized, right? But That's I mean, you correct. Said it's you not a your... life-threatening injury, but, but you, you took a round through the calf. All right. Well, if I took a round through the calf, I'm not going to be much good running anyway. On the other hand, I'm trying to think how fast I can move with my low crawl. I would go if, in fact, they're gunning for me and not attempting to abduct me. Mm, uh, if, are if, are if, they if, not, though? Well, I. it's a little too early, but... Well, they're firing into the crowd. Yes, where so, you're at. <laughs> and I've already been hit. So if they're going for just plain abduction, they're doing a piss poor job <laughs> of abducting because I mean, they already shot me once. So I'm going to say, and I also don't like my abduction odds in Mexico anyway. It Correct. Seems like everyone just ends up in a 55-gallon drum. Yes, yeah, something to keep in mind acid. as we continue this. Absolutely. So I'm going to go with the low crawl. Absolutely. And the reason being is, folks, again, if you ever find yourself in a situation like this, 
All you need to do is think about two things. Get down and move. All right? You're making a smaller target and you're a moving target. But if you're low, you're better off than literally running. You're gonna, they're going to see that and you're going to create attention. So that's plus 10 right out of the gates, Adam. Keep it up. All right. Okay. So you low crawl. All right? You find yourself behind a concrete bench, which is mm-hmm. good cover in a gunfight. Mm-hmm. But... The gunfight seems to be getting worse. Are you going to stay behind that concrete bench or are you going to continue moving to an alley that you see behind you away from the gunfight? Well, I'm trying to think of who would show up because we got the federales that are already shooting, but they're probably not federales. They're probably cartel guys that are dressed up in federales. But this is also something to keep in mind for a future decision. So you're going to stay behind that concrete cover, or are you going to keep moving away from the gunfight, getting off the X, as I referred to earlier? Well, hey, look, if I'm in the United States, I'm assuming that the cavalry is coming. But with Mexico, it's, it's hard to tell if the cavalry <laughs> yes. is coming. So be- Stick with that instinct. <laughs> so I think I'm going to keep moving toward the alley. Absolutely, folks. Again, Keep moving, get off the X, get away from the firefight the best you can. And you can be smart about this by going from cover to cover, but extend your distance from the X. 20 points plus 20. Okay, so you made it to the alley. On the right, you see a police station. On the left, you see a church. Are you going to go to the police station or are you going to go to the church? Mexico City. Well, the guys who showed up and started shooting were in cop uniforms, but I don't know if they're cops. And the church, at least I've seen in a few movies, I've seen some bad guys uh, (laughs) hanging out in the church, too. (laughs) This sounds like a little bit of a trick question, because I do sort of believe that Mexico City while it's in Mexico is still the capital of it's the capital of Mexico. And I got to believe that a, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of grift and graft and drug cartels. But I still have to believe that if you were in a precinct, they wouldn't execute you or shoot you. So uh, I'm going to go with the police precinct. OK, the reason why I would recommend the church is for the most part, other than some of the movies you cited, it's going to be a pretty safe space, okay? But with the fact that in a period of one minute, you saw people in uniforms in what can be considered a rather corrupt city initiating this violence. So I would recommend, I don't know who are the bad guys, I'm going to go to the church. That would be my recommendation. I think you're right. The thing about going into the police precinct you might get protection or you might get corruption correct but the church you would just sort of get no protection no corruption but you just get anonymity you just be able to you'd be off the axe exactly it's kind of neutral territory so that's okay we're still at plus 10 moving on okay you're looking around you're realizing you're in the church this was clearly pre-planned and organized You do not know who is good and who is bad, regardless of what kind of uniforms are wearing. So once you're in the church and because you are fluent in Spanish, 
the priest comes up and you hear him say, this is not good here. He hands you a coat. Do you head back out the front of the church or do you leave towards the rear of the church, not knowing what's on the other side of that door in the rear, knowing what's in front? He hands me a coat. I'll explain that in a minute. But he's basically uh-huh. saying, you don't want to hang here. All right. So tell me, I got to get out. Yep. In Spanish. And he gives me a coat. And I know what's going on on the front part of that door. So I'm probably going out the rear. Absolutely. So this is one of those situations where there used to be an old term safe in, safe out in the seals. That's not applicable anymore. You know what's out there. You do not want to go back out there. Somebody might have seen you go into the church. So to come back out the way you went in, not a good idea. There's the great unknown in the back exit, but you are continuing to increase your distance from the X and you are heading away from the firefight. Back to plus 20. Excellent. Heading out the back. Okay, so the coats, folks. You throw that coat on, grab some dirt in the street or the alley, put it on your face and your hair because you are trying to change your appearance or give yourself a better shot of blending in. You're in a fire suit. That's going to be pretty obvious running around the streets of Mexico City. So you're trying to disguise yourself in a situation like this. Especially, you should be under the assumption right now, I am being hunted and I am in a foreign country. So you are back on foot. You run, or I should say limp, about a block away, and you see a taxi. Do you get in the cab, or do you continue away from the firefight on foot? I'm a block away? Yeah, you're a couple blocks away at this point where you see this cab. So you're out of the immediate danger Uh, zone. Yeah, my feeling well i'm trying to think where i'm going like back to the hotel or i'm trying to think where i would go in oh the hang, hang on to that thought for a little bit later i personally would not get in the cab if i was several blocks away and i'm trying to think of how it works with the cab i spot a cab i hail the cab or the cabs like park there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess if the cab sort of approached me so to speak i would definitely be much more hesitant to get into it. No, you you have the option. You wave your arms. He sees you and he approaches. Right. So on one hand, this is kind of like the police precinct. On one hand, I'm far enough away that I feel like I'm off the X and the cab should provide transportation to wherever I want to go, but may not. I mean, there's a chance that whoever's in the cab has an agenda the same as the cops or the guys who are dressed up like potentially but you're bleeding out of your calf well that's that's true movement is getting a little bit more difficult for you on well thank you for that direction my (laughs) feeling is is as long as the cab is not noticing me and i hail the cab i would get in the cab if the cab pulled up next to me and asked me if i needed a ride I'm more hesitant to get in. So I'll get into it as long as I'm hailing it. Absolutely. So given the fact that you've got the injury, it's slowing you down. You're not that far away from where this all went. They're probably pursuing you. Keep in mind this entire time, I think I am being hunted. Absolutely. Let's get in that cab and let's increase our distance at a rapid pace. Plus 30. Okay. You get in the cab and basically because you are fluent in Spanish, do you talk to the cab driver in English or do you talk to the cab driver in Spanish? 
I'd go Spanish if I'm fluent in Spanish, because why let him know that I might be that guy who was the target for what they were looking for? Which is actually a really good argument, and I might give you this one. In a situation like that, you're going to stick out. You look like a gringo, even though you got the coat and some dirt on your face. So I would tell people, keep your cards tight in a situation like this. The less people know about you, the better off you might be in the future, which is why I would use English in this situation. Although your point about trying to blend in even more and using Spanish, that's a fair argument. So let's call that an even. Yeah, I'm also not picturing him seeing that much of me because he's kind of driving and I'm in the back seat. Right. But yes. For sake of the scenario here, Adam, let's say you spoke to him in English and you're in the back of the cab. You've been in the cab for about a minute. And again, you don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are. So after a minute or so, you see the cab driver get on his phone and he is talking in Spanish and you hear him say, yep, I've got him. I'll bring him to you. Mm -hmm. So you're like, Okay, which would be a great opportunity where if you didn't use Spanish, you're getting intelligence and you're learning more about the situation and Mm -hmm. he doesn't realize you speak Spanish. So Mm -hmm. are you, you're doing about 40 miles per hour in the streets of Mexico City. Are you going to dive out of the car at that speed or are you going to reach forward and try and subdue the driver with a rear naked chokehold? Dive out or try and subdue the driver with a rear naked choke. I've fallen off a lot of shit going <laughs> 15 or 20 miles an hour, but 40's, 40's a little different. Legit. 40's legit. On the other hand, the rear naked choke could just get you driven into a building anyway. I don't know that he's... Well, you, you can adjust the pressure. I think, well, now, with that in mind, I'm already kind of jacked up. Jumping out of the car at 40 seems like a bad idea. Yeah. The choke is good as long as you can use it to direct him versus choke him, you know, where you can tell him, pull over, otherwise I'm going to pull your head off. So I'd go with the rear naked choke with direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. You realize that you've gone from a shitty situation and now you are in another shitty situation because this guy knows who you are and he's taking you to the bad guys. So with the appropriate use of pressure, a rear naked choke would work great He gets the cab stopped. You rip him out through the back door. Do you go ahead and keep running or do you get in the cab and start driving? Just you in the cab. Hmm. I think I would get in the cab and drive. I think it would take a little while for them to figure out whatever it is was going on was going on. Now, this guy... This guy would get on his phone and he would call whomever and he would tell him the guy's got the cab or maybe not. I don't know if that guy wants the bullet in the head from these guys. That's true. But then again, hiding in plain sight, there are a million cabs in Mexico City. Yeah, no, I I think at that point, if your hotel was six miles away, you'd be best just taking the cab there or the embassy or wherever you're heading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, You had a round go through your calf, so you're not making a whole lot of time or speed on foot. You know what you're doing behind the wheel of a car. You're in that cab, and you're driving, and at this point, you're just trying to get more separation. Plus 50, stay in here, Adam. Stick with it. After several minutes of driving, you decide to pull over. 
get your cell phone out. No luck on trying to make any phone calls, but you're able to pull up the map app and you see that you are five miles from the U.S. Embassy, which is back in the direction toward the firefight, or 13 miles from the international airport. Do you go five miles to the U.S. Embassy in this cab that you've taken back toward the firefight, or do you go 13 miles in the opposite direction towards the international airport? I think I'm going to go... I was trying to think. Now, my tendency, I'm not sure the difference between an international airport and an embassy in terms of safety. I assume they're both safe. Well, think about the locations, though. Yeah, I, I will. So we've established that people are communicating with each other. And so there could be multiple people between where I am and the international airport that could be communicated with. Potentially, so, but you also know what's back behind you as well. Yeah, I don't. Uh, my impulse is to not go backwards. My impulse would be to go forward. And the difference between five miles and 13 miles is something, but it's not so great. It's not 100 miles and five miles. Yeah. My impulse would be to keep going away from the X. Absolutely. You nailed it continue to increase the distance from the danger zone. Other thing about an international airport, multiple forms of security. Each airline has their own. So you can be fairly sure you're not going to walk right into another abduction central at an international airport vice U.S. Embassy. Plus 60. Here is your last one. Okay. You are increasing the distance. You're about a couple miles from the airport. And in front of you, you see a dark sedan that is blocking the road. And behind the sedan is an armed man with a mask. You are going to ram what is a blockade. Do you hit the vehicle in the middle of the vehicle? Or do you aim for one of the wheels, the front wheels or the rear wheels in an attempt to drive through this barricade? Hit the vehicle right in the middle or try and aim for a front or a rear wheel. Physics on this one. Uh, I'd go with the rear wheel. The center, you hit at the center, uh, to me, that's the most friction. So it's a kind of a friction thing. So you're trying to get through this with the least amount mm-hmm. of friction. And you hit the center, that's the most friction because you've taken all your friction and evenly distributed it to four wheels. Yes. If you hit the front, that's two wheels of friction and a 500 pound engine. So that's a lot of weight. The back is two wheels worth of friction and no engine, unless it's a Corvair or Porsche, (laughs) but I'm gonna assume it's an American style sedan which is going to be a front engine configuration. Thus, the back will be the least weight and the least friction or the same friction as the front times two wheels minus the engine and transmission where the weight is. So I'm aiming for the back. And you nailed it. And it's as simple as that, folks. If you are in a situation like this, if you hit the vehicle in the middle, it's going to turn into a snowplow. But by hitting 
the front wheels, or even a better point you made, the rear wheels where there is a lot less weight without an engine, it will spin. Right. And it will spin out of your way, kind of like doing a pit maneuver. Right. And congratulations. Plus 70, Adam Carolla, you have survived this hypothetical survival world. Great job. Yes, thank you. I hope <laughs> I hope I don't have to make any decisions in the real world. Well, you did great. We do something we call an after-action report. It's kind of like, did you learn anything from this podcast, Adam? Yes. I learned to cancel my next race in Mexico. <laughs> I was going to do the Panamericana oh, nice. coming up in uh, nice. September, but I'm going to cancel that. Nah, I'll just take a few more guys for security. That can be a bullet sponge. Uh, I'm going to scrub that, scrub that <laughs> mission. Do all your pressing from uh, your hotel room, maybe. <laughs> hey, Adam Carroll, I can't thank you enough. You've given decades of enjoyment, and that's a truly noble cause, I really think, and it's needed more now than ever. So thank you so much for being part of Can You Survive This Podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kate. Hey, folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production. Recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.